Hi everyone, welcome back to another Room with a Review podcast episode. I uh, wasn't sure if I'd actually get one in this week, and I was trying to think of which text to do, and then I thought of one that I'd in- intended to do a while ago, and that is Kingdom Hearts, the video game series, which you may have picked up from the title of the episode. Uh, if you've never played Kingdom Hearts or run into video games, then I'll do my best to explain as the concept of it as much as I can. I mean, when I say never played video games, don't really have much exposure to them at all. Some people just, it's not their thing. But the Kingdom Hearts video game series is hands down my favorite video game of all time. It's not even close to me. And some people go, oh, it's a kid's game. Yeah, fine. Maybe. It's so much fun. I don't care. It's it's my favorite game. It doesn't have to be anyone else's. But the video game series, I think they've done five in the series now off the top of my head. Should have actually checked that. Every week I always say this something I should have checked. Uh, but I'm really just going to focus on the Kingdom Hearts 1, 2, and 3. The kind of in-between games like Chain of Memories, I'm not going to touch upon really. Uh, and so this was a video game series that I wanted to talk about uh, several weeks ago, in fact, like early on in the podcast. But I was still working my way to Kingdom Hearts 3. And even though I'm not finished it yet, I've played a bit more now to be able to uh, discuss it at least properly. So I can't talk about it, the finishing or the, I don't think I'm even halfway, maybe I'm, I'm getting close to halfway, but I think I've got quite a lot to go in it. Uh, but I just, I just think the games are so incredible for so many reasons. And I think it's a, I, I've picked these because I want to talk about video games as a text because I think they really get overlooked in, by so many people because for so many reasons. One, they're often seen as a, a kid's text and very childish. There's actually a lot of complexity to them, including the narrative itself, the way it's represented. Uh, but I think not only that, it's kind of seen as like a lowbrow text type sort of thing. It's not, it can't be a critical enough text type. Uh, and I think anyone that kind of has that opinion obviously has limited experience of video games where they're kind of taking them at face value they're not thinking them through uh in an age where we've got people looking at vr and augmented reality which has emerged from video game world largely it's big crossover there at least and we're looking at how vr and ar has all these narrative forms and user control and things like that and multimodality multimodality i i just don't see how people then write off video games as the next extension of that especially given that they've been around well, depends on your definition, but arguably longer. So I think, yeah, this, this video game series, it's been around for quite a while. I think it's not quite 20 years yet, but it's getting up there. Uh, it's pretty close to 20 years old from when the first one came out. And as I said, it's, it's just incredible. It's phenomenal. So basically the premise is that you're playing as the, char- the main character, Sora, and you are trying to defeat an a evil army known as the Heartless, who are essentially creatures that have lost their hearts or have turned to darkness. And so your weapon is a Keyblade Master, is the Keyblade, and you become a Keyblade Master. And pretty much the entire first game, it really incorporates very heavily the idea of unlocking the darkness in hearts or locking the darkness or unlocking the light of people's hearts. And so the key, there's a lot of aspects about doors uh, and each world that you visit has a keyhole which you have to seal. Yeah, I think there's, there's 
like they really use very basic symbols and kind of extended metaphors there, but it works really well because it's, you know, playing it as a teenager, you kind of go like, yeah, there's, it's not, it doesn't feel like a kid's game per se, but at the same time, it's not too adulty or it's not too difficult or conceptually difficult for younger kids. Like, I mean, I wouldn't say five or six year olds would play it, but anyone that's about eight, nine, ten, it's definitely not too advanced for them either. So all throughout the game, you've got characters that are mixed from Final Fantasy, uh, making appearances, as well as many, many Disney movies. So depending on the world you're on, it's based around a Disney movie. So for instance, you've got Tarzan, Alice in Wonderland, uh, what else is there? Atlantis from Little Mermaid, Monstro from Pinocchio, uh, Neverland from Peter Pan, Agrabah from Aladdin. Olympus Colosseum from Hercules. So there's so many worlds. Uh, but even on other worlds, you sometimes get other characters making appearances. On some of those worlds, you get characters making appearances. So for instance, Jiminy Cricket travels with you to document your travels. But then when you go to Monstro, he obviously plays a bigger role. Uh, where you start off but a world that you kind of leave and don't go back to Destiny Islands, there's Final Fantasy characters and you kind of get to train against them a little bit, which is cool because it incorporates some of the things they did in Final Fantasy. Uh, in Olympus Colosseum, you pl- you've fight against a couple of Final Fantasy characters as well uh, as you kind of try to win the championship and become a hero, which is pretty fun. Uh, And likewise, on some of the different planets, you also get some of the characters that make appearances. And along the way, you're also trying to find the seven princesses of light. Uh, So basically, that's that's a pretty cool concept. The, The chief antagonist of Kingdom Hearts 1 is Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty, Although there's also someone that she's working with who, as the game goes on, kind of also becomes one of the chief antagonists who, between them, they kind of just control the darkness and work together. So it's really, really fun for so many reasons. Uh, if, you've, if you were big on the Final Fantasy games, obviously, and I was kind of peak generation of all those, like the, their kind of prime of Final Fantasy VII was exactly when I was of the age where, you know, getting into video games... And a lot of my friends played it. And so when a lot of those characters appear, it's kind of that cool, that side of it because it's definitely then feels like that teenager kind of game. But at the same time, you've also got uh, all these Disney characters, which is that huge nostalgia factor, which is so fun. Like the fact that you get to run around with characters like Aladdin or Tarzan or Peter Pan or Ariel or Jack Skellington from Night Before Christmas, all of that is really fun. And, you know, you can go train with Merlin, the wizard. You can go train with Hercules, just level up, develop your skills. So, you know, do different things and unlock different parts of games. And, yeah, so just being able to be in the world of all these Disney movies and they loosely model the storyline of the planets or the worlds on the movies that they're based on, which is really cool. But also you get to, it's really good because each world you visit, you can go back to it and there's so many more things you can do because as you progress through the game, you unlock more abilities and uh, skills. And so then you go back to the earlier world and there are other things you can access that you couldn't before. And so you keep going back and yeah, sometimes they even have extra uh, really, really difficult enemies to try and battle and defeat. So, for instance, you go to Agrabah, there's a way to unlock a hidden challenge in the desert where you can fight, oh, I forgot the character, the, the villain's name now, but it's really, really, extremely hard. 
so along the way, also on all of these planets, you're also fighting kind of the, the antagonist of the movie. So for instance, on Agrabah, it's obviously Jafar. Uh, for Tarzan, it's Clayton. Don't know why these ones come to mind. For Nightmare Before Christmas, it's Oogie Boogie, it's a Halloween town. Yeah, and so all the way through, you get these different villains that you have to fight. And it's just fun because you're like fighting the Disney villains and you're a Disney hero and it's really fun. And you get all the Disney princesses and characters appearing in the worlds. Plus you're playing through the actual kind of movie storyline in many cases, which is just really, really fun. And as I said, like for the whole nostalgia factor, it's, it's, for me, it's unrivaled. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I enjoy the game so much. Obviously, if you're not as big on Disney, then it would have much less appeal. And if you weren't as big on Final Fantasy, it has much less appeal. But merging those two things together, it's just fantastic. So I know I haven't really explained the plot all that much, but basically, as you progress through the different games, the plot becomes more and more convoluted. And I'm not going to attempt to explain the intricacies of that plot there are very extensive videos on YouTube that do a pretty good job of that. You just have to kind of search for them. Some of them explain different things and give theories about how things work. It's got a huge cult following. Uh, and there are people on YouTube that just put stuff up all, all the time about it. It's People go to all the different conventions like Comic-Con and things like that. Dressed as these characters, they like make their own keyblades. I see a lot of these designs around. They're just fantastic. It's, it's just... I don't know anyone that if you enjoy the game, you absolutely love it. If you don't enjoy the game, then you don't enjoy it. There's no half measures here. Like you either really, really get into it or you don't. There's, yeah, I've never come across someone that's played it and is like, no, oh, it's fine. And when I say played it, I didn't played it properly. So more than just like kind of one attempt at it or one sitting at it. So yeah, there's, there's all these different things and you can, it's, it's also really good for replayability, which is something that a lot of games get uh, critiqued on is, once you play it once, it's the sort of thing you can go back through 100% because you can make so many different decisions and as you play it once, you learn things. So sometimes you can do them quicker, but also you know to just leave some areas alone for a little while and just not bother with them because you know you're going to come back to them. So like the first place I ever did of Kingdom Hearts 1, I've got to stop myself from saying so like, I think I did it a lot more in these nostalgia episodes. But anyway, uh, yeah, so the first playthrough I had of Kingdom Hearts 1, you know, it was... And I wasn't trying to go through it quickly. I've seen, like I watched part of a guy that tried to play through in 24 hours and he got pretty close and then he realised there was an extra villain at the end, like an enemy that he had to defeat. He was a little bit at a loss, but then he re-upped and went through it. So that was kind of cool. But yeah, I was, you know, 50 plus hours for the first time I played through it. And that's because I was exploring and trying to access things that I didn't, like I thought, I could see you could access, but I wasn't able to access then. So I, I kept trying and trying, trying, couldn't get there. I thought, oh, that's weird. And then as you play through the game, you realize, oh, I'll just go back to that stuff. But you also don't know what opportunity you'll have to go back to them. And at the end of the game, you can go back through everything anyway. So that was really, really fun. Uh, so the, the second time I played it, I got it down much closer to about 35 hours. And I wasn't necessarily going as depth because I'd played through it before. So yeah, basically we've got Maleficent and another guy called Ansem who are controlling the Heartless, trying to unleash the Heartless across all the worlds. You travel with Donald and Goofy from world to world that is each based on a different movie. 
other than a couple of worlds which are just amalgamations of different bits and pieces and more just created towns that allow for some of these Final Fantasy characters to appear in them. Uh, yeah, so you travel from world to world trying to defeat the Heartless and these these villains, as I say, who are all working with Maleficent and Ansem. And along the way, you just pick up allies on each world who don't travel with you from world to world, but while you're on that planet or that world, you can work with them. And so that's really fun. So yeah, you get to interact with all these different Disney characters, which is really cool. And uh, all the way, a huge feature, which I think is really, really another great aspect of it. Almost every world, if not every world, has a mini game or mini games that you're trying to do or side quests that you can spend time on. So for instance, Merlin and the fairy godmother from Cinderella, they give you side quests to do with Winnie the Pooh and collecting uh, uh, wish stones, wish stones, soul stones, whatever they are, get the exact name, uh, that unlock other allies. So you can, for instance, get Mushu and Genie and summon gems. That's what they're called, summon gems. So you can summon different characters to assist you in your battles. You've got Tinkerbell at one point, Dumbo, Bambi. So all these different different summons you can make. Uh, and yeah, there's, as I said, Merlin gives you quests about the Hundred Acre Wood. So you've got to find pages from or characters from the Hundred Acre Wood and return them to the book. And then you get to do mini quests and just fun games. There's no Heartless that appear in the Hundred Acre Wood. So it's a really nice place just to absolutely a child and just play really risk-free games and try and beat your own records which is a fun way to kill some time and hence why i went way over 50 hours the first time i ever played it because i just spent probably way too long doing that stuff but it was just fun just sheer raw innocent fun but you've also got other mini games along the way so for instance the deep jungle of tarzan there's a slider type skill game where you have to collect fruit uh, you're trying to collect 10 fruit on each different part and each time you get through it, you add another level so it gets to about five levels in the end. And depending on then, you can jump off and access different parts of the map as you progress through it. So that's really, really fun. I, I think that's a really cool part of the game. Uh, as I said, there's all different side quests and mini games you can do throughout. And when I get to Kingdom Hearts very shortly, there are some amazing ones they've added and I really like that they've added more of these mini games for the the newer one so that's Kingdom Hearts 1 and I'll just move on to Kingdom Hearts 2 and 3 not quite as long on them though so Kingdom Hearts 2 they changed the gameplay style quite a bit and I wasn't a huge fan of it the battles were a lot, little bit easier but that kind of took some of the fun out of it because you raced through them a lot quicker I don't I, it didn't take me much more than about 20 to 30 hours to get through that game, which, you know, was half the time that it took me to get through the first one for the first time. And the worlds were a lot quicker. I feel like there was a couple of worlds that I'd sit down and I'd finish them within an hour. Whereas, for instance, Alice in Wonderland and Agrabah, they took me upwards of an hour and a half each time, roughly as I kind of explored the different components and finished everything to do with them. But I finished these other worlds in number two entirely, like entirely finished them pretty much within an hour, which is a little bit disappointing. So when you've got Agrabah, that's, you know, two hours or so to complete, uh, you know, worlds that are half the time is not as much fun. Like you kind of get into it and then it's like, oh, we're, we're done. So that was a little bit disappointing. They added some new worlds though, which is cool. 
they added uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, so I think it was based around Tortuga, which was pretty fun. I thought that was good. I was disappointed they didn't do more with it because I thought it was a really, really cool opportunity there. I don't remember much about it because it was very quick. They changed what you do in Atlantis so you weren't really fighting Heartless that much. You were just singing, which was a little bit boring, I found. So basically, you had to press buttons to be part of Sebastian's orchestra. And it was fine. It was a very innocent game, but it wasn't like minigame, but it wasn't really that much fun. I didn't enjoy that part as much. But the like you get to go to Pride Rock from Lion King, which I thought was pretty fun and cool. So I didn't mind that too much. Like the, the, the new worlds they added were definitely worthwhile. Uh, and they also added Pete from Goofy Movie. is maybe his best known work and also Steamboat Willie, where he's the main antagonist. So he entered this game. That was really fun. They added a couple of new worlds, as I said. There was one that was kind of based around Steamboat Willie, which was really cool. So it was about painting colors and stuff like that. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts 2 was definitely still fun. But because they didn't cut out necessarily story because they just made a shorter story, it wasn't as dense, so it was a little bit less fun. However, they did continue on the original story, and what they did is they introduced the concept of nobodies. So these were these other creatures, instead of not having hearts, it was basically other criteria. They were complements to the Heartless in many ways, which I thought was pretty fun. And so you were then fighting against the group known as Organization 13, which had been introduced in, as I said, it was the halfway game. It was one point, was it uh, Memory of Sleep or was it Chain of Memory? Something like that. Uh, it was whichever game that was that came after one. So they've been introduced in a previous game, but if you hadn't played it, they reintroduced them for you. So it was a bit straightforward. You could understand what's going on. And that was cool. The nobodies were fun. Uh, I thought it was good. But basically, they also told you that who you thought was Ansem was not Ansem after all. He was being possessed by a guy called Xehanort. And he kind of became the main antagonist with Pete and Maleficent of number two. So, number two was still pretty good. We're still progressing through some of these things. This this idea that you're still fighting to save people's hearts and memories and minds and souls and things like that. They definitely scaled down the idea of keys and doors. It was much less focus on those. But it was fun nonetheless. It was still a really fun game. As I said, it was just a little bit quick, relatively. Like it was, it was still a long game as far as games go, but it wasn't as long as I'd hoped. Uh, and number three, similar sort of thing. They've changed gameplay a little bit. They've kind of blended it between one and two. So the fighting style is a little bit more like two, but definitely the immersive worlds and some other things that happen are more like one. The battles are more like one. They've got a lot more uh, cutscenes with parts from the movies that are more like one. In some cases, maybe too many cutscenes where you almost feel like you're watching more of the movie happen or replications of the movie than playing the actual game. Uh, the, the worst one for that was the one from Rapunzel. For some reason, I can't remember the name of the world. I've the name of the town. But it was still really fun because I love that movie. I love Tangled. And so playing through that world was just a great experience. Getting to run around with Flynn Rider and Rapunzel and just fight Heartless and visit all the different parts. You get to go into the town. 
and you get to be part of the Sun Festival and the Lantern Festival. But you basically, as you play through the world, you are playing through the story of the movie, which is something they deviated a lot from in number two. So they kept the kind of fighting gameplay style from number two for number three, but went back to the more story-based, heavily story-based mode of number one in number three. So number three is really, really fun and enjoyable. I'm really enjoying it. Every planet I've been to is just so much fun. And it's also got all, almost all new worlds. I don't think I've revisited a world that was in one of the previous ones other than Twilight Town, which is in number two. So instead of Olympus Colosseum, they've changed it to Thebes slash Olympus, which is really fun. You get to run around the streets of Thebes. That's It's just good that they've made that change because the Colosseum was a bit getting done. Like You kind of got over it very quickly. Uh, and even though they did some things with it, number two, where you went to the underworld, this one was maybe the best iteration of it, other than the actual having a Colosseum to fight in. Uh, so yes, the world of Tangled was a lot of fun. I've also visited Toy Box, which is Toy Story. And given Toy Story is one of my favorite movies of all time, it's easily, it was easily my favorite movie as a child. That again, the nostalgia was just so rich. You just want to, I just run around spending as much time exploring everything I could, looking at all the little Easter eggs that are in it, which is one of the best parts of the Kingdom Hearts games, all the hidden treasures, quite literally in some cases that they're there, that are there. And there's also Monstropolis, which I'm working my way through at the moment. You've got Arendelle from Frozen. And in all honesty, I wasn't a big fan of the Frozen movie. I think there was too many songs. But that as a world is one of my favorite worlds of any of the Kingdom Hearts games so far. Just running through all the snow. Just phenomenal. It's it's just so really well created. And all the Heartless that appear on World are... if it's the first time you come across these Heartless, they're based around what they look like on that world. So for instance, in Arendelle, it's definitely snow-based Heartless that have kind of snow-based attacks or Arctic creatures. It's fantastic. Uh, and what they've also added to King Hearts 3, which is an, another absolutely really fun kind of mini quest, side quest sort of mini game aspect to it. They've added a gummy phone, which has retro type games on it based around older, either older games or old Disney movies, like small animations, so like uh, Merry Melodies or whatever they're called. Things like that. It's just really, really good. And then you've also got a huge connection to the actual Disney theme park, so Disneyland, Disney World, where finishing moves can be rides from those places. So you've got the Mad Teacups, you've got the carousel, you've got the pirate ship, you've got, what's another one? There's a couple and they're all really, really fun. So that's another great addition. You also get to go and look for hidden Mickeys, which if you've ever been to Disneyland or Disney World, you know that that's a thing that they've got that as you go through, you're meant to kind of notice little the Mickey Mouse ears and head, just the outline of them hidden around the park. And so as you go through all these worlds, you get to take photos of these things and get rewards for the more you collect, which is another just great, really childish thing that I just absolutely loved because it was a really fun thing just to kind of, I did, some people absolutely go nuts for those hidden Mickeys. They look, there's about a thousand of them in Disney world and they try and find all of them. I wasn't, when I went there, I wasn't looking for them that hard, but I, in the game, I'm definitely keeping an eye out for them because it's just great. You get to go like, Oh, I'm kind of doing what I've done in real life. And that, 
that to me is uh, one of the best additions they've made to the game. Uh, yeah, in number three. So let's talk about more of the actual techniques. I didn't really talk about the plot of number three, but I guess it kind of just continues on from one and two. You still got Organization 13 and the Heartless, and there's also uh, negative emotion creatures, which are a little bit like Heartless and a little bit like Nobodies, but in, in between. So they've added another layer to it, which is really fun. But as I said, if you really want to dig into the plot, it's very, very convoluted. And while I get the gist, there are certain intricacies of it that I kind of miss or don't really understand exactly because I've missed some of those in-between games. But definitely, if, if it's something you become interested in, I encourage you, YouTube is a great resource there. Uh, but... Yes, let's talk about the more technique-y, video game-y aspects of it. So one of the greatest things about Kingdom Hearts is the music. Anyone that's ever played the games, and as I said, they've loved them usually, or they've just not enjoyed them at all, but anyone that was in that first category, they will tell you that the music absolutely makes these games one of the reasons why they're so good. Uh, so... Each of the worlds has either music from the movie. So, for instance, when you go to Atlantis number one, you've got Under the Sea as kind of the main music. And then when you fight, the music changes. So when there's enemies around, the music changes, which is a good indication. It helps you as the player to know what to do, which is one of the great features of all video games when they have that music. Pokemon was really good at it too. Uh, but then you've also got other parts to it. That, so, for instance, in 100 Acre Wood, it's got the Winnie the Pooh song playing all the way through. And then at the same time, when you go to Frozen, as I said before, one of the reasons I didn't really like that movie was because the songs were just non-stop. They'd have one, they'd have a couple of minutes of things and then be another song, which I would rather if they just put, spent more time on actually developing the plot a little bit and just fleshing it out a bit, uh, which would have been much more interesting. But the music for Frozen is not based on any of the songs from the movie, at least as far as I could tell. And they've got this much more kind of Christmassy, carol-y almost sound to it. And it's just fun to run around. It's got this really uplifting song to it. So that's a, that's a lot of fun. At different points in that world, they do incorporate two of the songs, but you can skip through those if you want, which was a good feature they added from number one. Number one, you couldn't skip some of these cutscenes. Uh, number two, as I said, singing became a major part of the uh, of the game. There was different worlds where the, the songs were kind of embedded within it. But then when you go to the Tangled World in number three and you get to take part of the festival, dancing becomes one of the mini games and side quests sort of things. So that's that's really fun too. So music is a huge part of this. And I think when you think of Disney as well, Disney songs are, they're, they're one of the things that make it so amazing. Um, years and years ago, I bought a box set of 100 Disney songs. And so this was, must have been 12 years or so ago. And it just had songs from all across their back catalogue. And that was before a lot of the newer movies that came out. So, I mean, obviously I'm a huge Disney fan. If you haven't picked up, I've been to Disney World and all that kind of stuff. But I think they're just so great. And as English teachers, I think we use them all the time. So I know for a fact that uh, we teach 
how far I'll go to AU sevens, uh, alongside with kind of a very basic concept of journeys. It's obviously not the whole HSC that it used to be area of study, but we have borrowed ideas from it. We've turned it into a year seven unit of work. And so how far I'll go is embedded within that. Uh, we also do topics of heroes and villains. So we use Disney at different points in those topics. Uh, just trying to think of anywhere else that I've used it a lot. But yeah, some of the songwriting, the visuals of it is really good. It's definitely great for, for instance, multimedia, talking about the way Pixar operates as well. And a lot of the kids are into it too because it's, you know, they've just grown up with it. They've seen these things as they were younger. And as more and more gets added to the back catalogue, there's more and more for them to enjoy and experience. So that's really, really, really fun too. So Disney is a great, a great teaching resource, I think. There's so much, it's so textually rich because especially lately, they've done a great job with things like Moana Tangled, I also really, really highly rate uh, Princess and the Frog and Brave. I know they're not as interesting for some people. Some people, eh, they're fine. I thought they were great. I think Princess and the Frog musically, you've really got to appreciate what they did with that. Embedding a lot of the New Orleans type jazz music into it. Uh, uh, and a little digression here, in our faculty last year, me and another coworker who loves Disney more than I, we set up a Disney song bracket. So we kind of picked 32 of the kind of top Disney songs that we could think of. We could have picked different ones. And it was very, it, it led to some great discussion because we talked about the merits of them. We had people from other faculties come to visit to vote. And so each day we kind of went through the round. So we started with 32, knocked it down to 16, knocked down to 8, 4, 2, 1. And... There was some, and we randomly selected the the songs to go up against each other. So it wasn't biased. We didn't seed them at all. We just picked thirty two and then randomly assorted them. I think we seeded the first four that we thought were the heavyweights. And I think two of those four got to the final uh, four songs anyway. But it was really, really fascinating to see which songs people think are better and for what reason. So, for instance, Be Our Guest, I think, ended up winning, uh, which is one of my favourite. Beauty and the Beast is my favourite Disney movie in terms of songs. And so that was uh, a really, really fun thing to do at the end of the year. As I said, we had people from around the school come and visit and see what was going on vote and kind of have their their song win. And it was a really, really fun way to kind of end the year too, uh, doing that. So we've talked about doing a Disney movie one at some point this year. So when we do that, I'll update you on how that progresses. Oh, and uh, you could actually go to Beauty and the Beast in the second game. So in the first game, Beast was trying to rescue Belle from a world called Hollow Bastion, which reappeared in game number two in a slightly different way. But yes, you could go to Beast's castle in number two. That was pretty fun. That was one of the more fun worlds on that game, I think. Just getting thrown around the castle, again, being one of my favorite Disney movies, those nostalgia... It's just so huge, the nostalgia factor. Uh, but I was, yeah, I, I'm on a bit of a tangent there, off the idea of songs, but music in this game is just phenomenal. If you go on Spotify, you can download playlists of Kingdom Hearts music, and I put it on all the time just while I'm working because it's not distracting, but it's just really, really fun. And it's then it's a double level of nostalgia because it's not nostalgia necessarily for the Disney movies themselves, but for the game and that whole concept, it's... Just wonderful. I think they've had the same composer do 
the majority of the music all the way through. The theme song has been done by Hikaru Itada. Each time, I think this time she worked with Skrillex, maybe? Uh, definitely she worked with someone, some big name. And that was really cool. So I was really excited when this game came out. I didn't get it. It came out almost a year ago now. But it took me a long time to get it because I knew I wouldn't have time to play it for most of the year. So I've played it a lot over summer, but I haven't played it as much, obviously, since term started. But, yeah, let's talk about video games as a text type now. Let's, let's move on a little bit from Kingdom Hearts itself. There are so many different unique features of these because, as a user, you are controlling the text. It's different to choose your own adventure for a book because it's still heavily parameters within it. And some video games are better at this than others. So if you think of something like Skyrim or Witcher, huge open world Pokemon as well, you pretty much can have free roam. You can do whatever you want. You can explore it as much as you want. You can interact with people, travel to wherever you want. Kingdom Hearts is a little bit less so. You can do that to an extent, but you still have to kind of follow the narrative of it. And that's another major thing that all video games have in common. Narrative, whether it's simple, for instance, Mario, run from one, from the left-hand side of the screen to the right and rescue the princess. Even Pac-Man, it's still, you have a goal-oriented oriented kind of game where you're trying to get the fruit and defeat the ghosts. It's still a narrative of sorts, a very basic, but then you get things like Kingdom Hearts, which is one of the most dense narratives that I've mentioned already uh, of any game ever especially now that it's into its, as I said, third full-length game and fifth game overall, I believe, or sixth game overall. Uh, yeah, so the, the narrative of Kingdom Hearts is extremely complicated, but everything in between has different levels of narrative, and I think that's one of the important things that we need to teach with it. How those things get represented? Well, it's, it's an oversimplification to say it's the same as a film or a movie. It's not. So Kingdom Hearts does make use of cutscenes. As I said, the, the Tangled one was maybe a little bit excessive there, but the cutscenes are really good because they give you enough exposition without being the only way of giving exposition. It's good transition between scenes. It's also really good to have these animation sequences that we've got for Kingdom Hearts where as you unlock things and achieve certain things or use certain moves, there's great little animations that go with it. Uh, you can also interact and they have dialogue that happens outside of cutscenes, which is good. There was less of that in the first one. They didn't have all the voice recordings, but they've really done a good job of that in number three. So as you talk to characters, they used to have speech bubbles that pop up. Now it's actual dialogue. And yeah, you can respond to them with a speech bubble. But it's come a long way since then. So you've also got the use of camera that you can usually adjust the camera position and use it to look around. So it's not just a static camera that we get for film, which I think is why it's an oversimplification to say that, oh yeah, it's very similar to film. Because in many ways it is, because it is a visual text, we can still talk about these camera angles, but we also have to talk about the extra techniques and components or features that are there that aren't there for these other texts. So when we have menus, the interactiveness of them all, that you can select maybe to move to a different place, that you can change your appearance and customize it, that I think those two components are absolutely crucial to talking about video games as a text. And I think as a profession, English teachers need to really do a much bigger job of kind of nailing down what the terminology of video games. And I know that the video game developers are really good at that. They've set them up. And if you talk to any gamer, they will talk about RPG and MMORPG and uh, FPS and things like that. And all those acronyms of different types of games. And 
yeah, so there is the terminology out there, but I think as teachers, we need to really address these because I think so many of our students are into video games that I know some teachers have used them as text before. I've tried to embed them where I can, but it's very difficult to do that unless you've got the consoles or other resources set up. But yes, I think the interactiveness and the customization of it all that you can choose how you play the game, that that level of user control is so important. And I think that's why they're such a popular modern video game. It's something we discussed exploring for the contemporary possibilities unit. They are definitely something that would meet that criteria. There are, I've got to remember the names of them, but there are, there are more now than there used to be, but there are basically websites and other places that allow you to use bits of video games or screen record and then embed them as clips. So uh, Rooster Teeth's Red vs. Blue is a classic example of that, one of the first things that really do it. They basically recorded an entire TV series, or web, it was a web series originally, now it's, I think it's on Netflix, uh, called Red vs. Blue using Halo. And they wrote the story and they acted it out with the characters in the game or the, the figures within the game. And it went, I think it's still going, in fact, it's just gone on for years and years and years. And it's absolutely incredible. And because of their work with that, they were able to work with other companies to able, including Microsoft and their voices actually, or names got used in the game at different points, but to not have to just play the game to do it, but be able to get the mechanics behind it and use it more. So all those things are really, really incredible. And I think there's so much you can do with them that you've got every single kind of, of these textual concepts pretty much are there. You've got obviously form, genre, narrative, characterization, perspective, point of view, contrast, symbol, connotation, all of it. And you can talk about setting, you can talk about intertextuality so well with Kingdom Hearts. Uh, you can talk about any number of things really. And I think I really, really encourage teachers to explore video games that they're interested in. If it's something as simple as just watching clips of video games so you get a better understanding of it. There are people that do great video game essays. Live streaming is a major thing and that's what a lot of students do. A lot of YouTubers and Twitch streamers and Discord. All of those places, they video games are huge on them and that's what our students are into. And while I'm not saying we should do that because they're into it, I do think it is a great opportunity for us to kind of guide their appreciation of them in many ways and students that aren't into it they can kind of do the creating side. I think it's something we, we really haven't addressed well. Because I think, as I said, they often looked upon negatively. But I'm a huge proponent of them. And I'll probably come back to some other ones in future episodes. But I did want to talk about uh, Kingdom Hearts especially. It was one that was, as I said, huge passion of mine. It's, it's right up there with my favorite texts ever. So hopefully what I've talked about, it gives you a bit of a handle on it to think about oh and minecraft of course i mean that's designed as an education excuse me got the hiccups uh as, a, as an education game i've seen some amazing creations of minecraft where people have created for instance the worlds of middle earth or the, the cities of middle earth on it uh some disney settings and the creator of minecraft is really really fascinating too i've seen students use it for some incredible stuff so in terms of video games as a text type hopefully this is a good launching point for future discussion uh, it's something that I'd like to do a bit more work on, but that's easier said than done, obviously. And so if anyone out there is kind of got some really good resources on it, by all means, share them. Uh, I've mentioned my 
Twitter account is probably the easiest way to do that, edudaveshin on Twitter. Let me know there if you've got stuff on video games that you're interested in, or likewise, if you want to know more, I'm more than happy to uh, kind of get in touch with you about what you can do with them and the way I've used them in the past, because as I said, I've embedded them where I can. So, and I know other people that, as I said, they do the VR, AR thing, where things like Pokemon Go as a game slash augmented reality is a good kind of resource there too. So yes, that's something that I would like to come back to and I encourage all of you to explore, even if you don't know much about them, at least explore a little bit so you've got some kind of knowledge to help yourself out. But I'll be back in a moment with the next segment. So I did say I'm going to add a new section called Ad of the Week. (laughs) Ad. Uh, Pun was unintentional. But I do love puns. And I didn't get much of an opportunity. As I said at the very start of the episode, I didn't think I'd actually get to an episode this week. But uh, the one that I did see was driving home last night, the M4. And I've seen it before and it kind of sticks out to me every time I see it. I forget what it's for. So it's in many ways a good ad, yet ineffective for the product it's advertising. But I'm going to talk about something else after this about brand awareness. Because I think these two are good examples of that. So the ad, some of you may have seen it, uh, depending on where you live and who you are and etc. etc. But... As you drive down the N4 heading westbound, there's a ad for NRMA. It's not necessarily an ad in the sense that it's promoting any of their products, but it is a welcome to Darug country. So it's got an indigenous style artwork with just the NRMA logo in the corner. And all it's really emphasizing is just the fact that yes, this is the uh, original nation of that region, Darug land. And so I think it's a really good Add in many ways for the sense that it's addressing obviously the culture of that area and the history of that region. But as I said already, it doesn't, I've seen it multiple times and it doesn't sink in. And so seeing it, you go, oh yeah, it's NRMA. And then you kind of think about it, but it's not necessarily a great ad in terms of getting them business. I feel, I think it's a great PR move, which is maybe a bit cynical of me, but nonetheless, it's not. I, I mean, I really, really appreciate that it's there. I think it's great. I think it's really good that it is there. Don't get me wrong. But in terms of NRMA, it's not for their business actually helping them in any way. Uh, but that that actually reminded me of a conversation I had with colleagues yesterday where we are talking about Red Bull and it as a brand rather than the product itself. Because yes, Red Bull is an energy drink, but when you think about Red Bull, it's you kind of think of the, the term Red Bull, but... Yeah, your mind might first jump to the energy drink, but it's really about all the other things they do. If you think about Felix Baumgartner, who did the jump from the atmosphere, uh, that was sponsored by Red Bull. They've got the F1, other uh, yeah, the F1 team, Red Bull plus Toro Rosso. Uh, you've also got the Red Bull Air Race series. All these things that Red Bull kind of puts their name on. That's and a lot of extreme sports they sponsor and promote as well. And it's very very fascinating that. In terms of an energy drink, maybe it's just a localized thing, but Monster or V are maybe more popular, and yet Red Bull is the one that is kind of the big name. I think if you went around the world, everyone would know the product Red Bull. They wouldn't probably know V or Monster. 
necessarily. So I think that's very interesting the way they all work. Uh, and obviously I think, I think V or Monster or maybe both. I think V is owned by Coke. So maybe that's why it's not as, they don't need to promote it as much. Whereas, yeah, the, the Red Bull, I mean, they've had so many ads and they've got this classic style to them that it's been the same kind of style of ads for a long time. They haven't had one of those ads for a little while, but they, they were very smart. Their advertising, their, their advertising company or team is one of the best in the world, I would argue, because they've really figured out the recipe for success. Because if you look at their product, it's so valuable. And yet, you know, and I don't want to go down this path for this podcast, the audience, but Red Bull has a very specific use in certain contexts. Uh, but as a, as a brand awareness thing, it's, it's done a phenomenal job and it doesn't necessarily have a negative image either. Whereas if you think about energy drinks, they're not, they're not necessarily a positively viewed thing, but Red Bull is not a negatively viewed thing. And I think it's very fascinating the way they've managed to brand themselves and market themselves. So in terms of ad of the week, uh, on the one end, you've got NRMA who is just a little bit of a PR move, but a very nice move nonetheless versus Red Bull, which is definitely a brand PR move doing all these different things. And yet you kind of wonder how much of their product actually gets sold. So yeah, I think in terms of if, as a teacher, if you want to talk about advertising and brand awareness, Red Bull is a very fascinating company to look at, especially, and even their TV ads they've got, does anyone actually know what their product is or to what extent do they know their product? Things like that and what else they offer. So that's this week's ad of the week. Finally, as always, War and Peace, a very quick update. So last week I talked about Pierre joining the Freemasons. I read couple of next chapters they're about to go back to war to fight napoleon uh we've got a character with his young son who was sick is recovering i think i'm behind by chapter or two but i'm progressing i haven't necessarily fallen behind i'll get through them in these next day or two but yeah it was some good writing in that i meant to take note of it and i've got to start doing that but i definitely think the more and more i read of it i think one piece is an achievable book to read if you as I say, dedicate the time to it. If you're a fast reader, you'll definitely get through it without too much of an issue. But I think reading a chapter a day makes it achievable as well. You can do it within a year, which is what my aim is. Uh, we're about a third of the way through the year and I'm pretty much a third of the way through the book. So that's uh, comfort to me. But basically, yeah, these, these contrast between characters is kind of growing. We're seeing Pierre went to visit uh, an old friend, Andre, who had the, the sick son, and they kind of drifted apart. And I thought that was very fascinating. There was a line there about, they kind of spoke because they had to, but it was very awkward. And I've, I think I've definitely had that experience. I'm sure other people have too, where if you don't see someone for a little while, you don't know where to start the conversation. You're not up to date on those things. And I find that really difficult if you do bump into someone that you know and you recognize each other. But what do you talk about? Because you don't, you haven't spoken in so long that there's so like it would be hard. You don't have a context of what's going on in their life. So I thought that was a really fascinating chapter or maybe it was two chapters uh, where they had that conversation and the interaction between them. 
But that's it for One Piece. I'm not going to dwell on it too much. I want to kind of cut down on those, given I'm not having huge jumps ahead in the plot each week. But I do like touching upon some of these really interesting ideas that come up in it. Uh, it was also very interesting to find out something that happened. Pierre, the character, he went to his, some of his estates and he basically freed the serfs and gave them a lot of rewards, which historically, contextually, was years ahead of his time. So, yeah, I think these... And it was interesting to find out. I looked up a bit more about Tol Tolstoy and found that he was very progressive in that regard. He was very much a promoter of equality. So... Uh, good on him, and good on him for including it in his book that became such widely so widely popular. But that is it for another week. I did try to keep it short for one piece. I'll try to do that more in future, so I don't need to talk about it in as much depth. But I do still encourage everyone to read it. So that's me. You can find me at edudation, E-D-U-D-A-V-E-T-I-O-N on Twitter. As I said, for Kingdom Hearts and video games, hit me up if you really are interested in knowing more or you've got more to offer there. Because I think, as I said, it's an underrated resource and text type for teachers to use. Thanks, everybody. I will see you in another week. I'm still aiming to get to an actual book for a full-length episode, not just War and Peace. Thanks, everyone.